Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 114. It's titled, Money is Cheap, Freedom is Expensive. The title of today's episode was derived from a quote from a remarkable gentleman who passed away last week at the age of 87. For close to 50 years, this man, Bill Cunningham, rode his bike through the streets of New York City, camera in tow, often stopping at the intersection of 57th Street and 5th Avenue, to take photos of ordinary people wearing interesting outfits. These photos were published in his weekly New York Times on-the-street column and slideshow. His most recent piece was ran only a few weeks ago. I have never seen an octogenarian move as fast as Cunningham as he worked to capture a shot, often running ahead of his subject to get a better view. You can watch him run and, and learn all about him on this fascinating documentary. It's called Bill Cunningham, New York. In there, they do a wonderful job of profiling Bill's frenetic pace, his infectious smile, and his joyful demeanor. Cunningham photographed people in the streets during the day, and at night, he went to the city's charity events and galas in order to document what was going on, taking pictures. But he wasn't overly impressed with celebrities. In 2008, the French government bestowed the Legion of Honor on Cunningham, and in his acceptance speech, he said, I'm not interested in the celebrities with their free dresses. It's the clothes, not the celebrities, and not the spectacle. Cunningham lived alone and never married. For decades, he resided in a small studio in Carnegie Hall, sleeping on a cot amidst his file cabinets, filled with negatives. The bathroom, he didn't have a private bathroom. He would go down the hall to a public bathroom. He didn't go to movies or own a television. His passion was capturing the changing fashion and times. He said, I don't work. I only know how to have fun every day. It's not work. He admitted he was peculiar. He got his first camera in 1967 as a gift. He was age 38 and he used it as a visual notebook, just following and observing and taking photos of people in the city. Previously, he had designed hats. He had his own design studio, but then got drafted into the military during the Korean War, served there, spent some time working at a journalist, but eventually got involved in photography, but always had a fashion or a focus on fashion. His focus was on the clothes. Cunningham deeply cared about the people he photographed. He wasn't a paparazzi, but an artist who sought to capture beauty, not embarrass people. He didn't take unflattering photos of people. He, he wanted to capture their authenticity and their essence. 
For a time, he worked for Women's Wear Daily, but when they published a series of his photographs, and in the captions on the, on the, on the spread that they did, they ridiculed the ordinary people in his photographs but, because they had, they had the people that were wearing the, these fashion outfits, and then they had the models who were wearing the same outfits. And Cunningham was mortified because they had made fun of the people in the photographs. And he quit, and he never worked for Women's Wear Daily again. Cunningham said, I did try to play a straight game. And in New York, that's almost impossible. To be honest and straight in New York, that's like Don Quixote fighting windmills. Cunningham described fashion as the armor to survive the reality of everyday life. I don't think he could do away with it. It would be like doing away with civilization. Besides fashion, Cunningham's armor for surviving was his faith. He attended church weekly. And when the filmmaker asked Cunningham about his religious observance, Cunningham, he was overcome with emotion. He couldn't speak for several minutes. Finally, when he composed himself, he said of his faith, I think it's a good guidance in your life. It's something I need. Whatever it is you do, whatever you do as best you can to work things out, I find it very important. Although he admits when he attended church when he was young, all he did was look at the women's hats. Cunningham also valued his freedom. He said the most important thing was never to be owned, to be free. And here's the quote where I took the title of today's episode. He said, money is the cheapest thing. Liberty and freedom is the most expensive. To maintain his freedom, Cunningham lived simply. For many years, he refused to join the payroll of any one publisher, instead opting to be a freelancer. He only joined the New York Times as an employee when he got hit by a truck on his bike and decided that maybe he had to join a company so he could get health insurance. But this quote, never to be owned, this was from a tape or a video of him in the early 80s. And it was after one of the publishers that he had had a close relationship got bought out. And they, they cut him a small check of the proceeds. And it had been like a year and he still hadn't cashed it. That's how little money meant to him. And, and they sort of asked him about that. And that's when he, it was just kind of on the street. It was just a passing comment. Never be owned. That's the key to be free. Money is the cheapest thing. Liberty and freedom is the most expensive. Cunningham uses freedom to discover beauty as reflected in personal style. He gravitated to those who were not crowd followers or crowd pleasers but who bravely express their individuality. When Cunningham accepted that award in, in France, he, in his final words and his voice cracked with his emotion as he said it. He said, it's as true today as it ever was. He who seeks beauty will find it. I find New York a fascinating city, and I've never seen, I never saw Bill Cunningham take photos there. I just saw the documentary, which if you have an Amazon Prime video membership, you can, it's on there. I did not see it on Netflix. But I recently read an article by Pamela Gwynn Kripke in the New York Times. It's called Once and Always a New Yorker. New Yorker. And he quoted, or she quoted David Kurtz, who is a composer who lived in LA for 35 years. He won 10 Emmy Awards for his compositions. 
and he recently moved back to New York City, and he said, the ocean, the environment, it becomes a continue, it becomes continuous, and I lost the fascination. Here, speaking of New York, I am in awe every day. I walk out the door, and the city is performance art. And that, that's one reason I, I love city. I just love the complexity of cities. And it is, as you just observe, performance art. And that's, that's exact, exactly what Bill Cunningham did for almost 50 years, just observing and taking pictures. When I was in New York last fall, and I try to get there once a year, a, a listener of the show who is a, a documentary filmmaker, a television producer, he reached out to me. I didn't, I didn't know him. He just wanted to, to have breakfast. And so I, I had breakfast with him. We had a delightful conversation. But one of his reasons for wanting to have breakfast with me was trying to figure me out because he, he couldn't figure out why I was so positive about things. And, and I generally am a very upbeat person, but I, I have to admit the, the last few weeks as I've reflected on the, the cost of money and the cost of freedom, that, that, that it's been a little discouraging. I'm a little concerned. We've had the Brexit vote, which I talked about last week. I promised Anna that I would discuss Brexit a little bit. One of the things I did in terms of the investment implications is members of my Insider's Guide the free email list that you can sign up for at moneyfortherestofus.net or text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. What I sent was a, my mid-month strategy update from the Money for the Rest of Us hub. And there I talked about, I recorded this the day after the vote, and I, I shared my initial impressions on, on what I'm doing from an investment perspective, just sort of, sort of initial impressions. So I sent a copy of that audio to the insider's guide. If you go ahead and, and sign up for that, you'll you can get you'll also get a copy of that. So I want to talk about the investment implications. But because there there are, are a ton of unknowns, there was a quote by Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the Telegraph. And this was I didn't see this. This ran before the vote and he discussed why he was voting to leave. And many of those that voted to leave they, they were very nuanced views. I shared one from Sasha Bright last week. So this was not by any means a black and white issue. But one of the things Ambrose says, he says, let there be no illusion about the trauma of Brexit, of Brexit. Anybody who claims that Britain can lightly disengage after 43 years enmeshed in European Union affairs is a charlatan or a dreamer or has little contact with the realities of global finance and geopolitics. And if you've seen what has happened in the days following the vote, this is recorded on Tuesday, the vote was on Friday, it, it reminds me a little bit of, we used to have this husky dog, and, and, and I remember going out one morning, and he had, he had fought this badger, this woodchuck, and had won, but it's didn't really know what to do next. He had won, but just wasn't sure. And he's looking at me and he's looking at this badger. And, or I guess it was a woodchuck, not a badger. I'm not sure he would have beat a badger. But it's almost like the, those that voted to leave won, but now they're just not sure what to do. What, what are the next steps? 
And so there's a great deal of uncertainty that has led to volatility in, in the stock market, which I was I, I alluded to in that episode was a distinct possibility. And one of the other outcomes is the cost of money continues to fall. How do we measure the cost of money? Well, the cost of money is interest rates. What does it cost you to pay to borrow money? For somebody to lend you money, there's a cost. And that cost has plummeted. Interest rates have plummeted around the world. Rates are negative in many countries, which means investors are paying the governments and banks to hold their money. 9% of central banks around the world have explicitly targeted targeted negative nominal interest rates. But once you fact out, if you look at real rates, so nominal rates less the rate of inflation, 35% of the countries have negative interest rates. And so we're, we're sort of in a conundrum because money is so cheap. And, and typically you would think, well, money is cheap because nobody wants to borrow. But that's actually not true. World private non-financial debt to GDP or nominal gross domestic product is at 156%. It's at an all-time high. So debt around the world, so household debt and business debt has continued to expand. It's at an all-time high. Much of that is in emerging markets. That's where there's been a huge expansion of non-financial debt to GDP. It was 140, no, 80% in 2008 Now it's practically doubled to 149% over the past eight years. In the developed market, non-financial debt has actually shrunk a little bit. It was 170% of GDP in 2010. Now it's 159%. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash david. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. 
You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, generally, if you're getting an increase of debt, I mean, this is how it's supposed to work, right? So the central banks around the world have targeted very low real rates or low rates of interest, so target rates of interest, and then they've communicated and they're trying to set, get rates, real rates, so rates when you back out inflation, at such a level that there's, there's a clearing. In other words, there's sufficient borrowers, there's sufficient lenders, there's full employment, and the debt is used for worthwhile product projects that have a return on their capital that lead to increased productivity and hopefully an expansion of the economy. But what has happened, as debt has increased, the economy is not growing faster. Nominal gross domestic product, the five-year rate of change, is only 11%. So over the past five years, the overall increase in nominal GDP has, has been 11%. This is data from they got from Ned Davis Research. That, that, that's about 2%. Just over 2% a year. I had to stop recording just to confirm those figures. And, and they're actually, the World Bank con- confirms that. So the, the nominal GDP five-year rate of change, this is through December 31st, 2015, was 11.4%. That is the lowest since the after the dot-com bust in 2002. But this chart that I'm looking at goes back to 1970. In the 70s, nominal GDP was growing at a five-year rate of change was 80%. Then it peaked in, looks like, early 1990s at just about 80% again. And then it fell pretty much throughout the 90s at bottom in 2002 at 11%. And then right before the Great Recession, we got up to 60% in terms of the five-year rate of change. And now we're, we're back. The trend has been down since. Now, this is after, this is with the recovery. So if we're looking at the five years ending 2015, that's what, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Actually, that'd be 2011 through 2015. So we've had an expansion of debt and we've had unprecedented actions by central banks that the... The Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, and the People's Bank of China collectively have increased their balance sheet through quantitative easing. It's gone from $7 trillion, $7.1 trillion in 2008, to $17.5 trillion today. We've had a massive expansion of, of private sector debt, of central bank debt, of government debt, the, the government debt has grown at an annual rate, this is according to McKinsey, 
from 2007, to 2000, 2007, government debt increased at 5.8% annual rate. And since 2007 through second quarter 2014, increased at 9.3%. And so debt is expanding, yet we're not getting the benefit of it. And, and that's what that causes me to worry. Rates continue to fall. And we, we look at the U.S. where, you know, after the Brexit vote, interest rates on the 10-year Treasury bond fell to 1.5%. They're at 0.5% in Germany. They're negative in Japan. There isn't really any, there is no reason why the U.S. couldn't have a 10-year Treasury bond at 0.5%, where rates could continue to fall if we continue to have just a, a very, very slow growth economy and central banks are keeping their anchoring rates at a very, very low level in their attempt to try to essentially, they're so worried about the state of the economy, the low level of productivity that they, they fear if they actually normalized interest rates that we would end in another recession. And that is a cause for concern. So money is cheap. But freedom and liberty is expensive. And this is the other concern I have. The massive change that has occurred really over the past decade. This was a recent article by David Brooks in the New York Times. It's called Revolt of the Masses. He says, from 1945 to 1995, conservative and liberal elites shared variations of the same vision of the future. Liberals emphasize multilateral institutions and conservatives emphasize free trade. Either way, the future would be global, integrated, and multi-ethnic. But the elites pushed too hard, and now history is moving in the opposite direction. The less educated masses have a different conception of the future, a vision that is more closed, collective, protective, and segmented. Their plan is indivisible, economic stress, community breakdown, ethnic bigotry, and a loss of social status and self-worth. When people feel their world is vanishing, they are easy prey for fact-free, magical thinking and demagogues who blame immigrants. And, and that's the concern. There, there is definitely an appetite for magical thinking. And, and it, it's both politicians are producing the magical thoughts. Tim Hartford on Planet Money, he's an economist. He was interviewed right after the Brexit vote. One of he thinks he said was British politicians used to be good at misleading people without actually lying. And that particular discipline, discipline appears to have been abandoned in this campaign, which is it's hard to put the genie back in that bottle, back in that bottle. On July 17, 1787, the members of the U.S. Constitutional Convention debated who should elect the U.S. president, the people or the legislature. According to notes compiled by James Madison, Governor Morris argued, and and he's from New Jersey, and and that's actually his first name. I always thought Governor Morris was a governor, but that's his first name, G-O-U-V-E-R-N-E-U-R. So Governor Morris argued the president 
ought to be elected by the people at large. That if the people elected the president, they will never fail to prefer some man of distinguished character or services, some man of continental reputation. But if the, elect, if the legislator elects the president, quote, it will be a work of intrigue, of cabal, and of faction. It will be like the election of a pope by a conclave of cardinals. Real merit will rarely be the title to the appointment. So Morris was, was arguing the people ought to make the choice. Robert Sherman disagreed and believed, quote, the sense of the nation would be better expressed by the legislature than by people at large. He felt that people would never be sufficiently informed of the nominee's characters. Charles Pickney agreed with Sherman, saying the people will be led astray by a few active and designing men, while the national legislature will be being most immediately interested in the laws made by themselves, will be most attentive to the choice of a fit man to carry them properly into execution. Colonel George Mason Mason noted the inconsistency that at one moment we are told that the legislature is entitled to go through, entitled to thorough confidence and to indefinite power. At another, that it will be governed by intrigue and corruption and cannot be trusted at all. Ultimately, Mason felt the legislature should choose the president because it would be, quote, as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for chief magistrate to the people as would to refer trial of colors to a blind man. He said that it is impossible that the people can have the requisite capacity to judge the respective pretensions of the candidates. When I read these quotes and I think about how the U.S. presidential election has evolved this year, I'm not sure who's more qualified to vote, the people or Congress. The, it, the whole process has been discouraging. I, I, throughout growing up, I always thought the cream would rise to the top, that those with the best reputation would be running for office. And, and now when you look at the child, child, childishness of the debate and and just the duplicity it frankly it's discouraging and a, and a little worrisome or very very worrisome so what do we do about it well one become informed participate in the process and and i'm not here to say how to vote but let's just i just wish we could elevate the dialogue and not fall for flat-out lies. From an investment standpoint, I used we would write memos at my old firm, and no matter what happened, we would end the memo essentially to diversify. And I, I used to think, oh, that's such a, a weak ending. In terms of, you know, we, we go through this analysis, and at the end, well, what do you do about it? You diversify your portfolio. But ultimately, that's what we have to do. We have to have multiple portfolio drivers because we don't know how rocky this Brexit will be. We don't know how the U.S. presidential election will turn out. We don't know what the ending of this debt bubble that has continued to grow or when it will end. We, we don't know how long rates will remain this low. When you have a country like Spain borrowing money at 194-year low interest rates, it is a very, very unusual time. So we have to diversify, including pockets of independence. 
I went out and I've mentioned I bought more gold, not because I'm a gold digger or a gold bug, but simply because it's another driver of my portfolio. I got an email from a hub member the other day and a listener who's considering buying a timber farm. We need to simplify, not let anyone own us, just as Bill Cunningham talked about, by reducing our debt, maintaining our flexibility. Here's a man that was 87, still working, enjoying his life, completely flexible in how he lived his day-to-day life. I'm sure he had no debt and was able to maintain that, that flexibility by simplifying his life. So even though money was cheap with very, very low interest rates, he was still doing fine because he'd maintain a lifestyle that he could maintain throughout his quote-unquote retirement. He didn't even call it work. He called it, it was, to him it was fun. Now, he lived a peculiar lifestyle in the sense that I don't think I could not be that dedicated, not have a family, and completely be engulfed in, in that particular work. But he did it, and he enjoyed it. So that's episode 114. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Next week, there will not be a regular episode of Money for the Rest of Us. I still will be releasing, I'm going to be releasing an interview that my friend Brian Bain of Investor in the Family did with me. Where And so that'll be released at the regular time slot. But actually, we have 17 people of my family members coming to our farm in Idaho on the day that this particular podcast is released. They're going to be here a week, so I'm taking a week off. But there will be an episode at the regular time. And then we'll go with episode 115 two weeks from today. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for an insider's guide. And if you would like a little bit of help or more help, a mentor, somebody to, to fill that, that sweet spot between being completely on your own and managing your money and or hiring a day-to-day financial advisor, one and one and a half percent annual fee. If you want somewhere in between where you can ask questions, get answers, and get asset allocation help, some model portfolios, you can do that at the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, and you can get more information there. That's a premium membership site. Approaching 400 members now, that's at money for, or money for the rest of us hub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.